You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talkback program. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Sometimes it feels like this world's gone crazy. refreshing label to have, isn't it? Yes. I think it's great. Well, let's talk about your uh, your hot little show on the Hallmark Channel, shall we? Apparently, it's like a hound that gets into the hen house and starts eating eggs. You just can't stop this thing. Bring it on. Come on down. Well, Hallmark called me about a year and a half ago, and I, I thought it was a prank, um, you know, payback kind of thing, because I am legendary for my sense of humor and my pranks. I'm called the goofiest woman in country music. A, a title I wear proudly. Mm-hmm. So when they called and said, hey, would you like to have a talk show? Because um, people have been trying to get me to have talk shows for 15 years now. I said, nope, you can't make me do stuff. You can't make me read off a script in a teleprompter. Not going <laughs> to do it. I live out there on life's highways. I mean, I've even, I've been to Canada so many times. And I just, um, well, anyway, I'm unscripted. And I'm very spontaneous and I live by my I sort of live in the unseen world uh, I'm always in the got a foot in the invisible world so having said that I, I couldn't believe that Hallmark was saying I could do a show about um, respect for all the world's great religions trying to find out what they have in common and celebrating and telling the stories of ordinary folks to whom something extraordinary has happened and I went okay and lo and behold, it's it's a stinking reality. I resonate with so much about this show. I just think that there's there's so many commonalities here. It's a bit scary, actually. But one of the frustrating things about how my show is uh, received in the Christian community is that people doubt my walk with Christ when I interview people who have different or even opposing spiritual journeys than I do. Does that does that happen to you? Nope. 
Um, the cool thing about country music is that it's pretty much white bread. Of course, now, uh, nutritionally speaking, it's whole wheat, whole grain bread. But anyway, I feel welcome wherever I go out in the world because um, whatever visibility God's given me as an entertainer, and I know there's nothing different or special about me. I've always felt like whatever I'm experiencing, like it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with it, whatever I'm getting to, to groove on is really so that I can share the nitty-gritty, what I call the exquisite reality of whatever I'm experiencing and the mistakes I'm making. And I say change is inevitable. Growth is optional. Those, those times where I have made the right choice and, and grow just to kind of tell my story, I am a storyteller. And then people tell they just spill their stories on me. Mm. They don't even say, hi, you know, my name's Drew, um, I'm an iconoclast. <laughs> 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 they just go right to the um, the core issue. And because it, I come out of country music and they know that, I hope they know, I've never owned a diamond, wouldn't have a, a jewel or a designer outfit, and I live on a farm and I care more about relationships and curing diseases than I care about like I, for instance I believe in creating a home not an image so if they know that I'm pretty unfiltered and pretty direct I'll tell them if they need a breath mint mm. somehow they give me leniency I, I say that spirituality I'm a spiritual being living out a human experience, and I, I really hate religion. I think religion is a bridge that can get us across to our true ne- nature and essence. But everybody, um, not everybody, but a lot of people, too many, in fact, get stuck on that bridge. Nicely said. Well, I mean, you've had some pretty interesting characters on your on your Hallmark show. Uh, one person that stands out. Who's that crossing over guy? What's his name again? Oh, John Edwards? Yeah, John Edwards. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's no doubt that there's some opposing views to where, at least where I stand with the whole Jesus thing. But at the same time, he just seems like a really neat guy. But you have these, you, you do, you have a list of very interesting characters on your show. And I'm surprised that the the Bible Belt and the Jesus community down where you live, especially down where you live, doesn't kind of freak out about, oh, Naomi, I mean, where are you going spiritually with all this stuff? Well, it's food for thought. Yeah, I want to, I want everybody to talk at the supper table, which is one of my big um, issues. I think my solution, and I'm a pretty simple, practical sort, my solution to America's problems, if people would start having supper together, for instance, here at the Judd House in Winona, and Ashley and I share a farm, where we share a valley, we have separate residences, but we have separate 530s, so everybody knows the plan. If people would start having supper together and talking about these issues, then we wouldn't be so hypnotized and obsessed with the media hmm. and we would actually start being defined from within instead of by that silly culture out there that tries to um, brainwash us and make us all clones. So on the show, yeah, when my, I've got about six or eight field producers. A lot of folks don't realize how, how a TV show works, but it's a huge team, which is my favorite gig. You know, when I worked as an RN, be a nurse in the hospital here in a little, a little town in Franklin, Tennessee. Mm. I love being part of that medical team and caring for someone who's in trouble. 
I love being part of the judge and the band. Um, Yo-Yo Ma and I were talking recently, and he said, and I love this, that um, that's what music is. It's all about trust. You know, I have to trust that Winona, as the lead singer, is going to sing the right notes so I can harmonize with her. I have to free fall into the fact that my drummer and my bass player are going to give me the right tempo and and groove. So I love being part of a team. And in my Hallmark show, it's that squared. Because I have six or eight producers, and they'll go out and say, okay, what about John Edwards? And I kind of went, ooh. You know, the Bible talks about divination, and no one can tell the future and all this stuff. And they said, okay. But I believe in having an open mind. And if somebody, if I'm going to agree to disagree with somebody, that is so interesting. Sure, and you at least need to know what you're going to disagree with. And I think you need to base that on primary source material. I remember specifically I, I interviewed the high priest of the Wiccan Church of Canada. And, oh. and uh, boy, I tell you, I've said this on a, a recent television interview I was on. Yeah, you know, I got more hate mail or more anger mail from the fact that I interviewed Amy Grant, who was divorced from Gary Chapman, than the fact that I... You, you're making that up. No. <gasps> Whoa. You know, people were more upset that I interviewed Amy Grant than the high priest in the Wiccan Church of Canada. Now, people were still a little wigged out that, you know, whoa, what are you doing? Why would you give him a platform? But I've been burnt too many times by reading... Uh, stuff that's not primary source material. I'm sick of reading what Christians have to say about Wiccans. I want to hear what the Wiccans have to say about Wicca. Does that make a little sense? Yep. And you know what? Uh, my little red-headed mama, Polly Judd, back in Ashland, Kentucky, out of Appalachian town, lives in the same house I was born and raised in, used to say to, to uh, my siblings and I that you may be the only Bible some folks ever read. Hmm. So... If every time I get in my car or a cab in New York City, I live there one week out of every month to do this show. They built me a studio in New York. Right. Um, I'll get in, have a Muslim cab driver, and I'll say, okay, and I'll just <laughs> go right to it. Okay, you, this guy, this is a true story. His name is uh, Muhammad. He has two teenage sons. They are his life. I said, okay, Muhammad, what are you going to do if one of them marries someone outside of Islam? And gives up his faith? Yeah, it just converts to goes to their religion or changes religion. Yeah. And I didn't say Judaism or um, you didn't specify it. or whatever. Yeah. I just said, you know, leaves the faith, marries, marries someone who's not a Muslim. And without a beat, disown. without even processing it, he said, I would disown it. Really? You know, and I just had tears in my eyes, and I said, Muhammad, tell me more about that. You know, all of a sudden I was playing a therapist. How do you... How do you really feel about that? Are you sure you want to do that? You don't want to stay in your son's life and maybe have an influence on your grandchildren and all that? So I am constantly, you know, sitting at the hotel maid, the holiday room service guy, whatever. I'll just say, you know, what is your passion? What are you conflicted about? You can't. I mean, I hate prejudice. That means to prejudge, and you're giving up your opportunity to potentially have a very meaningful encounter with somebody. My best girlfriend is black, and Melanie is a school teacher here at Metro in Nashville. Um, she's in recovery, former addict, and I mean, I find people interesting who are raw, who are willing to give it up 
we're willing to acknowledge their vulnerabilities. And I love the article that you wrote talking about um, the sterility of Christianity because that, that's a term I've used. I, we go to this rockin' Pentecostal church, and our, our pastor is a psychologist. He has a Ph.D., and he's really like my brother. So what I said to him one day, because we built this new church, I said, uh, you know, some people don't want somebody to come in. I always say the church is like the ER. Um, people that are bleeding profusely who have chronic illnesses, you know, it's a metaphor for our life struggles. But I said, it's like they they come in and, oh, my God, the sheets are, are white and starched and the floor is clean and everything's sterile. We can't let these people who have bodily fluids and... <laughs> I say, bring it on. Oh, yeah. One of the things I often uh, think about is, you know, the old days where the folks used to put the plastic covers on the, on the couch and, you know, you could never really sit on the couch or enjoy sitting on the couch or... You know, that kind of reminds me of the church scene today in so many ways. We've got this plastic cover over everything, and we don't want real nasty messiness getting in the way of enjoying the couch. It's just, just a bit insane. <laughs> that would be my Aunt Evelyn. She just passed. She was uh, 85, and she literally never had a date in her life, which means she never did it in her whole life. <laughs> and she had plastic on the living room stuff, and you never sat in the living room. So I was, <clears throat> well, I know that I was always her favorite niece because I would ruffle her feathers. I think that was my role in her life. <laughs> I would go to her house. You know, she always said, you weren't allowed to move the thermostat off 68, God forbid. No. Everything was perfect. So I would go to her house. I would turn on music. I would grab her and dance. And I would say, okay, I'm going to go through all your drawers. I'm going to mess up your cool stuff. And I'm just going to take one thing. See, if you, see how long it takes you to figure it out. And the last time I went to see her in the nursing home a couple of months ago, um, I got one of those fake cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, this lady had, you know, the bangs, and she always took her purse. Like, we couldn't go anywhere if she, you know, she had to carry her purse with both hands. You get the picture. So I walked in. I peeked around the corner of the door into her nursing home room the last time I saw her and uh, gave a little puff. Of course, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I've never even been drunk, but I play the role. So I puffed on the cigarette that let out a big gust of powder. I go, how you doing, toots? <laughs> well, somebody like you has to do this to people. Yeah, I think uh, we're living in a pretty numb and desensitized fog of a North American culture. And, you know, in order to get things even discussed or provoked, there needs to be a... Well, I, you know, I kind of wonder if I'm the armpit of the body of Christ or something. You know, I just stink, <laughs> stink enough. I would say that you are the UCC, the upper cerebral cortex. Uh -huh. That's a high compliment. Do you know what that means? That means I, I need to take a lot of medicine? I don't know. No, I have no, no. no clue. No. Okay. Short version. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of my girlfriends, a lot of my male friends are neuroscientists and psychiatrists. Okay. The hillbilly and the genius, I know. But they have taught me, and a lot of this is in my new book, Naomi's Guide to Aging Gratefully. Um, because 15 years ago, the Mayo Clinic told me I had three years to live because I got hepatitis C from a needle, contaminated needle stick at the hospital. Irony of ironies. I was trying to help others. I got a life-threatening illness. Of course, now I'm cured. But in this journey of 15 years to become this medically documented miracle I am now, I had to become proactive and start figuring out how to help my body um, 
boost my immune system. So I have been hanging out with brainiacs and Nobel Prize winning physicists. And one of the things they taught me is that the, the temporal lobe in the brain around the ears is the, in the limbic system, is the primitive emotional, it's the oldest mammalian part of our brain. And I think a lot of folks in the church are operating out of that. Hmm. It's very, well, you know, we can't have homosexuals in the church. We can't allow somebody that's divorced. We can't allow somebody who's questioning. We can't allow somebody who uh, doesn't believe exactly like we believe. Um, they're a danger, and they're sinful, and we have to cast them out. Okay, so that's that part of the brain. The next part in the front of the, uh, actually behind the forehead, is the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe makes choices and judgments. It adjudicates. That's where the filter is that goes, ah, if you do that, you're going to go to jail. Ah, if you do that, your wife's going to leave you. Ah. I think I've taken one too many shots to that part of my brain. (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, we figured that out. Um, in neuroscience, the famous story is a guy named Phineas Gage working on the railroad hits one of these uh, railroad ties. It actually penetrated his forehead. And this very congenial, um, intelligent, likable, affable guy completely changed personalities, became a sociopath, a drunkard, and it was because he lost his frontal lobe to this penetration. Hmm. Okay, then... If you allow your synapses, your brain function thoughts, to continue on, if you just rest in that little thinking gap, and it's called awareness and consciousness, if you'll allow that thought to continue on instead of reacting with prejudice or discrimination, then it goes up to the upper cerebral cortex, and that's your highest thinking. And I believe that's what God wants us to do, because that's when you combine emotion, your feeling and your, um, your your feeling and emotions. Feelings and emotions are different from thoughts. So that's when you have your emotion, but it sort of is combined with previous experiences. Like, oh man, I know what it's going to be like if I drink too much. I'm going to have a hangover tomorrow, and I'm going to lose the day. And that's why I've never been drunk in my life. Hmm. It's not that I'm a Pollyanna. I don't like being sick. <laughs> you, know, you know, in the in the town and neck of the woods that you live in, if you became a therapist, you'd be you'd make a million bucks a year. Easy, you know. It's just... Well, the other thing, the other reason I've never been drunk is I really like to tick one on and actually off. <laughs> because I've never had a beer in my life. I'll drink a margarita or a glass of wine. Um, but I love going to restaurants or a party. Someone will offer me a beer, and I'll say, no, I've never even tasted a beer, because it sends them to the moon. <laughs> you are just a troublemaker. Absolute troublemaker. Eight years old was when your daddy first brought home the TV, and it's taken that long for you to bring some serious integrity back on television. And uh, the stuff I'm seeing, the stuff I'm hearing about this show... It's good. I mean, this is good stuff. Life stories that stand out. Can you tell us one that just kind of sticks to the top of your head? Oh, all of them. Um, you know, in fact, I'll go back to my hotel room after that, after we do the show, 
And I like my scented candles. Of course, you get room service. I want my comfort food. Take a hot bath. I always have my dogs with me. And I just sort of bask in the afterglow. And these stories just... I'm very porous. I suspect you are, too. And these are real people. So one that particularly is... Uh, well, it's very dramatic. You got an eight. You got a little girl named Jennifer Carlson. Her daddy is pretty much her caretaker. I don't know if he had a disability or what, but the mom works. So the daddy brings her here in the morning, makes her lunch, takes her to school, picks her up. When she's 12 years old, her mom is waiting outside junior high and says, "Daddy's done something bad. We're not going to see him again. He's one of the biggest serial killers in California." Oh. So uh, this girl. Uh, packs on 70-some pounds, sleeps with knives, worries that she's going to turn into the exorcist. She's going to, you know, wake up some morning and um, become the bad seed, the genetic thing. So I brought a gal pal of mine on who's the world's leading forensic psychiatrist. Her name's Dr. Helen Morris. I just had lunch with her in Chicago. So they're doing a book signing last week. She has interviewed more serial killers than anyone in history. In fact, her book, My Life Among the Serial Killers, (laughs) read it on a dark and stormy night. (laughs) I mean, the girl has John Wayne Gacy's brain in her basement. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep, next to her son's hockey equipment. So she, I have, I I adore her because I'm so fascinated with uh, how the brain works uh, because you have to understand the brain. It really leads us into the spirit realm when you understand the human experience of, of how our brain and our mind work. The brain and the mind are two different things, of course. The brain is a three-pound organ, in your case, maybe four, but the brain is a thing. It's measurable like the heart and the lungs and the kidneys. It's three pounds. The mind, ah, the mind is the information pathway. The mind is the body's control tower. So I bring her on, sit her next to Jennifer, and talk her through the fact that um, she doesn't have the pathology. Does, she does not have the genetic makeup. Uh, we talked about what makes a serial killer, which was fascinating. And then we started talking Jennifer through um, some of the things that she needs to do. And in that moment, to get to bear witness to that, I totally forget that I'm on TV. Hmm. That's what's called being in the flow. Some of my neuroscientist friends have coined that phrase. When we are really doing, and I say that's where it, when we are really in the arms of God. When we are so interested in the human experience, knowing that it's so not who we are, that every problem has a, is a spiritual problem because it has a spiritual solution. Hmm. So you see it in this bigger, if you want to call it metaphysical, go ahead. I love diversity. It causes me to hold my own belief systems up to the light, my own value systems. And what usually happens is I become stronger and more affirmed. You are, um, I mean, there's no words. uh, Like, I'm just thinking of Simple words like wow and cool and neato, and I just think... Oh, stop. You know, wow upside down is mom. And you you said I'm a super mom. Yeah. I really have to um, 
I really have to sort of, I guess the word is deny that, because I think every mom, every dad, are called to, to becoming superhuman. Winona and Ashley continue to be my greatest teachers. Because I can hang out with, well, I was at the White House a couple of weeks ago. I mean, this is what you all have done for me. The mobility, the opportunities, the privileges you guys have allowed me. Just because I'm a songwriter and a singer, which I would be doing anyway. Um, and there was President Bush and Laura, the entire Supreme Court. I'm sitting with Colin Powell, who's a longtime 15-year friend. Um, across from me was Diane Sawyer. I get to do this stuff, and everywhere I go, I'm aware that even though I'm exposed to the worst and the best, the least famous, the most famous, I come home, and Winona and Ashley just uh, mess up my program. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Here's here's a quote. I need you to tell me who said this to you, all right? You ready? Yep. I've never seen a mother who loved and cared more about the well-being of her children than you, but your technique sucks. Ted Klontz, my therapist. <laughs> what is that all about? Well, he was talking about past tense. He said that about five years ago when he started working with me. And it's because I don't think he'd say that today. Um. I'm going to ask him, though, next time I see him. I'm going to ask him to sort of grade me on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, okay, here's the deal. We are all going to start out parenting the way that we were parented because it is such a <clears throat> it is such an overwhelming, it's like this tsunami wave of duties and responsibilities, and I didn't know. My mom and dad had no psychological skill, and I was raised, well, okay, quick story, my poor little mommy, um, her grandfather, David, hung himself and tried to murder his two little boys, mm. Norman and Howard, um, they were like six and four, he turned the gas on, locked the doors and windows, hung himself in front of them, expecting them to succumb to the fumes. But the older of the two boys, Howard, six-year-old, he couldn't pull his daddy down from the rafter, but he broke a window and pulled his, his little brother, Norman, the four-year-old, in himself to safety. Well, Howard grows up to be my grandfather, my mom's dad. When my mom is 11, and she's got siblings, he, A, committed suicide in the bathroom by shooting himself in the head, or B, was killed by my stepmother. My grandmother, great-grandmother, said that she thinks that um, my grandmother killed him. Because wow. she left town the next day with her lover. But, um, so here you go. My mom... No wonder you started singing country music. <laughs> yeah, I put that in a song, huh? So my mother's grandfather... Murder, suicide. I mean, this poor man, what mental illness did he have? You know, maybe if we'd had Zoloft and Prozac back then, the man could have been saved. But anyway, then her own father and her mother, like I said, leaves town the next day. So she is put in the care of her grandmother. And my mother um, did the best she could do 
under horrific circumstances. And I really credit her. She's the one that took us to church, and she's the one that said, Honey, the deepest source of your identity is God. And I know she was hearkening back to her own origins. She didn't want to claim any of these pathologically, um, mentally ill folks as her identity. So she turned to God and Jesus Christ, and it worked for her. She's still healthy and driving a canary yellow BMW convertible around our town. The license plate says, Giddy up. <laughs> yep. Oh, man, I just got a bad visual there. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not an expert in anything except making mistakes, but I do have a Ph.D. from the School of Hard Knocks, and I'm a Rhodes Scholar. America is my research lab, and I'm just a student of human nature. So speaking of Hard Knocks, I mean, it's been quite a journey from Diana Ellen from Ashland, Kentucky, to Naomi Judd, the superstar from Leaper's Fork. Mm. And when you think about hardships and pain, a pretty unfair question, but who's hurt you the most, Naomi? I can't believe nobody's ever asked me that question. Ding, ding, ding. Bring out those fabulous prizes, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I ever, I was with, I feel like I'm name dropping, but I was with Oprah recently. Um, I'm sorry, who? <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> I know she called the house here one day, and I pick up the phone, she goes, hi, it's Oprah. And I went, Oprah, who? Because you can't even believe that you know these people, <laughs> that these people acknowledge you, you know. But anyway, I told her, well, we were at the Martin Luther King Memorial thing in Washington, D.C. The family, the King family, and asked one and I sing a song that I'd written, Love Can Build a Bridge. So Oprah was the master of ceremony. I'm standing there in the green room just hanging out with her, and I said, do you know that you, Larry King, Barbara Walters, have really been my therapist because it's like therapy by journalism? Because every time you guys stick a microphone under my nose and a camera in my face, and I'll put the spotlight on me and say, okay, how do you feel about da-da-da? It makes me turn into a detective. I really, it's an inner, I-N-N-E-R view. And I can't believe that you, Drew Marshall, is the first person that's ever asked me that question. I would have to say, definitely it's myself. Because when I make a choice and then I have to look in the mirror truth and realize that I've hurt somebody else, that's the worst pain. When I made a conscious decision that offended, let somebody down, um, or was untruthful or whatever, and I messed up somebody else, that's what sticks with me. Yeah, and that's that's something I resonate with, again, quite a lot. I just recently did a television show up here where we... It's kind of like a male version of The View, and and uh, and I'm Rosie, and um, I could see that. <laughs> well, you know, we both like women, right? So, and and what I was going to say was that uh, uh, we were talking about forgiveness and forgiveness, and who we, everybody had to forgive, and you forgive this person, you forgive that person, and somebody did this to me, and so, now everybody had these stories, and I I just couldn't relate because I've been the jerk in these life stories. I've been I've been the the person who has hurt me the most. Uh, I've had to forgive me more than I think anybody else. So the answer, you have the same answer to the question? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Do you find that, I mean, obviously you've asked that question before, what would you say the percentage is of people who acknowledge that they did it, that we're all doing it to ourselves? Uh, 40%. Hmm. 
40 percent. Yeah, it depends on the context of the interview. But, uh, but I mean, here, uh, you know, we're talking with someone who's gone through uh, three fairly publicly dark times. And of the three big scenarios that took you in, into darkness, which one would have taken you the deepest? Domestic violence, uh, battling for years as a single mom on welfare, or your fight against hep C? Well, the domestic violence thing was very short-lived. Yeah, that wasn't my. That wasn't the kid's dad. That was. Uh, that was a boyfriend. I got pregnant with Juanona the night before senior year of high school. First time I ever had sex. Um, yeah, I was left alone to raise my siblings. I was the oldest, because mommy had t- and daddy had taken uh, a younger brother, Brian, two years younger than me, with red hair. He was died of Hodgkins, and they took him to the hospital the next day. So the night before my senior year. Uh, cleaning the house, laying out my outfit. I was so excited. And this older boy I'd had a couple of dates with came by because he knew he heard I was alone. And, uh, yep. And a few months later when I told him I was pregnant, I thought I was pregnant. He left town. We never heard from him again. But I married another boy in town um, six months into the pregnancy just to give one a name and a home. And then I had Ashley. So just to clear that up, um, that guy's name is Michael was, well, I won't even get into it. But anyway, uh, as soon as I got a divorce from him and had the two kids by myself, I fell for this psycho ex-con boyfriend who lived next door. And, but that was probably just about a year. The answer to your question is uh, C, hepatitis C. Hmm. Definitely. Why? I mean, curled up in a fetal position in a dark room with a life-threatening illness and you're... For two years, you feel like you've got the world's worst case of the flu. Not good, boys and girls. And you've got doctors, and remember, I'm a member of the mainstream medical community, and I actually looked at the pathology slide under the electron microscope of my liver biopsy, and it was grim. I mean, it looked like I was going to take a six-foot dirt nap pretty soon. So when the doctors are staring down at me in their starched white lab coats, there's nothing we can do for you, you're going to die in three years. If I hadn't known that God and I have a contract, that God is in control of my destiny, not these allopathic doctors, I mean, I get really um, fired up because some of these doctors, men and women, put these hexes, these medical curses on folks, and that's medical malpractice. That's mental malpractice because your body, as I've learned in my research of 15 years, moves along the path of its expectation. Your belief will manifest your into biology. Whatever you think about, you will become, and I can prove it with neuropeptides. You know, in the Bible, everywhere, and I really, I started hanging out with some spiritual mentors. Um, a little guy out of a tiny town in Arkansas really taught me about how the power of the tongue, meaning the power of our thoughts, because it's all it all begins with our thought process. And on the other side of the equation, I was hanging out with, uh, well, for instance, Dr. Candace Pert, who discovered neuropeptides in 1986, the biochemical equivalents of our thoughts. So I started studying with her. So I was always, you know, on one hand with this little farmer in Arkansas, I'd bring him on the bus, who would teach me the scripture about um, as we think we become. And I really started cleaning out my thoughts, emotional house cleaning, if you will. 
And on the other side of it, I was getting the medical scientific data. A lot of boring slideshows. You know, I think of the Philippians verse, focus on whatever's good, whatever's right, whatever's pure and lovely and admirable. And that's a tough go in today's scene, in today's media-driven market. I mean, the amount of time we spend being influenced by plug-in drugs. I like that term. I always say that we're, our kids are raised by appliances, but plug-in drugs. Um, well, I agree with you, but I'm going to I'm gonna acknowledge that you can always, uh, I say the best channel is off. Yeah. All you have to do is go on a media fast, and I've had to do that. And in this book, Naomi's Guide to Aging Gracefully, subtitle Facts, Myths, and Good News for Boomers, I really delve into, um, it took me about seven years of research on this book, because I have all the data about how the longer a woman watches um, just the junk candy TV, Mm. the stuff that has no nutritional, spiritual calories, where they're trying to convince her that she's not right, so she'll buy their stuff, Mm. it's all a racket. Um, The more she becomes hypnotized and obsessed with body image of these um, cosmetically and surgically sculpted bodies, the, the less her self-esteem is um, and the more unsatisfied she is with her body and her life in general. Well, also, concurrently, her mate, boyfriend, uh, lover, husband, is also going to become dissatisfied with her. Hmm. And in the book, it tells how many negative images were bombarded with a day. And it's it's horrible stuff. I mean, it's stuff that anti-spirit it's stuff that will cause depression I remember daddy's hands folded silently in prayer and reaching out to hold me when I had a nightmare like what you've heard listen again online at drewmarshall.ca left their mark behind.